My guest this week is someone who has constantly challenged the norms of fashion, and in all honesty, pushed the envelope, I know I hate that term too, more than any designer I've ever met. You know, thinking about this, my guest would probably cringe at hearing me call him a designer. He's an artist, and one I've admired for a very long time. Originally from Israel, he spent most of his early life in Australia and found his way to designing rave clothes for friends, eventually moving to London and working for THE Alexander McQueen. And from there, well, it's not the journey or nostalgia you'd expect him to talk about, but it changed his life. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Islamic designer Sruli Recht, a designer who blends fine art, runway fashion, and industrial design all into one. Sruli and I discuss why his empathy made it impossible for him to be a veterinarian, switching from classic fine art to making clothes for ravers, and how the greatest waste in fashion is how it treats and uses a people. And last but not least, he shares why he values information over money. Let's talk about you and your background, because, you know, given the fact that you'd said you'd lived in so many places and you've kind of always been on the outside, I, I, it does make me understand slightly a little bit more about the different mediums you've used to communicate how you feel. Yeah, I mean, there is really no one medium. And I actually came quite late to fashion. I only really had that discovery moment when I was, uh, I think, uh, 17, 18. Now, mm-hmm. I know that doesn't sound late. When I think when our generation were kids, there was this idea that you were supposed to know what you were going to be already. Yes. I don't know about you, but you know, having Jewish parents, the, this kind of culture was like, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a surgeon, you're going to be an accountant. This is not like some kind of stereotype. This is the reality. This is how this sort of families work. And right. so I'd gone through school with the understanding that even though I only wanted to be in the creative classes, I was starting to become a veterinary surgeon. Oh, wow. Until I did a work experience placement in a vet. And I was like, I don't have the emotional stamina for this. I can't be around animals in this much pain. Oh, I can't, God, yeah. I can't hear them. I can't cut them up. I can't do these things on a, a consistent basis. Sure. As like a, as a work placement uh, student, we did things like take the ovaries and have to dissect them and look at them or help with the surgery of a dog's knee, putting this, what they call like the crucial ligament back into place yeah. or something. Cranial cruciate, yeah. And I just, you know, this one, I know, I know how this is going to sound, but this one puppy that had a cast on its leg and was sitting in this kind of like wet cage, it killed me. I could not be in that room. And leaving the sort of the week that I'd been there, so, mm. well, that's not going to work out so well now, is it? <laughs> I mean, what I do is not that far different from it, but I'm not watching helpless people in pain. I don't right. have that. When I'm scrolling on the internet and there's like sad stories about people helping disabled people eat in a McDonald's or bikers protecting an abused kid from people in court, I break down. I, I just, I can't not yeah. experience the the real empathy that's happening there. Yeah. Um, it goes to show the the desire to um 
to connect and to heal. You know what I mean? Like not to get like too heavy, but I mean, I, I see that stuff all the time and it's tough because if it's on your phone, right, you can just go to something else. You can just, you know, if it's the news, you can change the channel. But when it's in front of you, if you see this dog and you're, you're in this field, you're in this profession that you're, you're supposed to be in and you're watching uh, animals who can't really fend for themselves. And even though you're there as a sign to help, it's, it's definitely stretching because I imagine you can only do so much to help. But the amount of respect that you have to have for carers yeah. and, and doctors and healers and, and people who can sit with the pain of somebody else and walk them through, whether it's physical, intellectual, or emotional pain and help them heal and have enough, um, self-protection to take them through that, I think is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does fashion slowly work its way in? Because I mean, there is an art to, to healing, to caring, but where did, where did the art of textiles and other mediums come in? I'm not sure uh, if there is a link there. I think it was the first time I felt really part of a community and a subculture when we were teenagers and Mm. uh, we were raving and being part of this community of ravers who were sort of in this new bubble of doing things. It was still a very new thing in the mid-90s, even though it had started in the 80s somewhere else. But and where Melbourne, was this? This was in, oh, Melbourne. in Melbourne. In mm. Melbourne, it was a very, uh, you know, underground thing still. And uh, through a, a weird series of events, I had to get from one side of town to the other without a car or public transport. And I'm talking, you know, this was probably like an hour and a half drive. So I think I felt I got like the last train, but there were no other trams or anything and ended up walking down a long street, like one of the main shopping streets. And for some reason, all of the trash cans were on fire. Like someone must have super weird. Someone must have come through in the night, set a couple of uh, bins on fire. And as I got to the last one, I realized with the bins were on the left and on my right, there was this uh, clothing store that was selling rave clothing and I'd never seen anything like it before. And wow. It was, it was the moment, right? So I go back right. there uh, the next day and um, I was like, can I, can I design some clothing for you? And the guy- uh, And you'd never designed clothing before then? No, no. No, mm. I, was, I was in an art school doing uh, fine art. Right. Basically, so what I was doing was oil painting, ceramic sculpture, uh, graphic design, studio studio drawing, and I really actually thought I was going to be uh, a classic artist the whole way through. Mm-hmm. So you go to the rave shop. Yeah, go to the rave shop, and it just sort of switched very, very quickly. He was the guy there didn't have a, a fashion background either. He had obviously seen a gap in the market and jumped on it. And before that, he'd been doing. I think it was sort of like more what you would consider Burning Man type clothing. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, pre-Burning Man, the sort of trance. Right, right. Post-hippie kind of thing. And uh, I was like, can I design? And he was skeptical, but wasn't going to pass up on a free, <laughs> a free offer of someone making clothing for them. And it just took off from there. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And this was the very first time I'd experienced the... Um, falling asleep thinking about it, waking up thinking about it. You know this is what you have to do for the rest of your life because that's all that's on your mind. Right. And it went from there. And so from there I uh, had to teach myself to 
understand the body differently. Because I've done a lot of uh, anatomical studies, you know, with art. So I very much, the world of art for me was body in the center and then everything sort of kind of moves out from there. Mm -hmm. And so this was really not much of a difficult transition, you know, just seeing the body as the canvas. It wasn't like a new way of thinking. I'm sure Mm. several thousand people had already said a phrase like that before. Uh, And and, um, it just switched almost overnight straight into clothing. I think there was this kind of nice um, synchronicity moment where an old tailor store down the road was closing down. Mm-hmm. And they had machines in there that were almost 100 years old. Have you ever used the sewing machine? I have, yeah. yeah. So you know a sewing machine goes forwards and it goes backwards. But the backwards technology, the backstitch, is actually kind of a recent invention in sewing machines. As mm-hmm. in, I think they put them into machines in the 20s. Mm. this machine did not go backwards. That's how old it was. So for $550, I bought four machines. I bought a straight stitch, an overlock, a button holder, a blind hammer, and a cutting blade. And I got them to my house and had no idea how to use them. I had to sort of figure this out. This is also pre-internet. This is Mm -hmm. 97. There's no way to look things up yet. And I'm just sort of basically playing around problem-solving you know, turning dials till something works or breaks. I had to wear safety glasses because uh, I was breaking stuff. And then, you know, I sort of like figured out how to use the machines. Then once I got that, I had to figure out how to do fabric. Like what do I do with the material exactly? Right. The sort of problem-solving approach kicked in to figure out how to pattern make. So, you know, pattern making is basically mathematics. And I put my arm on a piece of paper, just like this, on the paper, drew around my arm, cut out the paper, mm-hmm. I had my pattern. I transferred that to the fabric, cut the fabric out, stitched down one end, and I had a sausage that was maybe one inch wide. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it's not just one side of my arm. I've got to draw my <laughs> arm and then the other side of my arm. So it was like this real sort of slow process of, uh, thinking, I know everything. I don't want to get a teacher because I can figure this out. And then having to really kind of painfully learn the width of the body. Oh, okay. The width of the body plus some space. And then it was just bit by bit learning. And then I bought some pattern making books, uh, learned the formulas and just jumped in like that. And then did you start selling your clothes? Were you now that you're making them, was it because sometimes when, when people start making something like, you know, I'm curious where your brain was leading you to. Was it like, oh, I'm going to do this for me because I want clothes that I made myself or, oh, I'm going to do this and sell it because I can, you know, make money. The truth is, I don't think I ever really thought about making clothes for myself. It was just to make? I think uh, of all the clothing that I owned Wearing something that I made has been an afterthought or a byproduct of having some stock remaining. But the first thing I made, I sold to another guy, a raver. I found the photos the other day. An enormous (laughs) pair of jeans with this huge, big orange quilted section that went over the top. So this is is so typical of my um, all-in approach. 
which I, I didn't realize I was doing yet, but now I can look back on it and just think you just always bite off way more than you can chew. Not For the first garment that I made, not only did I make a pair of jeans, which is quite difficult material to work with and mm-hmm. also look good, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I then decided I would also quilt the material myself. Oh, jeez. So, so quilting, as as you know, is where you have a thin layer and then a spongy layer and then you stitch grid lines over it. So it was zips, it was pockets with zips, it was quilted layers and I think everything kind of seemed doable. Mm. You know, like it was just a, a, a temporal challenge, like with enough time I can figure this out. Right. And what were you wearing during that time? You know, were probably, there, probably was the there- clothing from the store that I'd walked past. Interesting. Which is not what I was making at all. Right. While you were, you know, making rave clothes and you you kind of start to become your own designer. Eventually, you, you made your way to McQueen. How did that happen? Uh, forced entry, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, I uh, was in Melbourne and I'd won a comp... For the first... The, it, it begins with winning a competition and going to the UK to present at this kind of... You've heard of the Commonwealth Games? Yes, I have. At, at, at the Commonwealth Games. And someone said to me, um, it was Colin McDowell. Have you heard of Colin McDowell? He is considered the sort of uh, the main fashion journalist of the 90s and I guess early 2000s. I'm not sure if he's still working. And so Colin says, I think you would fit in at the McQueen studio. And this is the year 2001. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know who that was. I didn't know who McQueen was because I, I had blinkers on. And I mm. wasn't paying attention to other designers and because there was no internet, like I said before, the only place you could learn about other designers was the library. And the library had three books that you could learn from. One was on Issey Miyake, one was on Gaultier, and one was on tribal body art. So for us... The bar was there. The bar was Gaultier, Miyaki, and piercings and tattoos and s- splitting your penis in half and calling it, you know, performance. Right. I think that's probably a moment that I should regret not saying, yes, take me there. But I, you know, was full of hubris and was like, I don't know who that is. I don't care. So I didn't go. And then I went back and I told my... uh my collaborator, and he just kind of, I think he was in shock because McQueen was the only person that he was interested in. Yeah. But it didn't mean anything to me then. And it, you know, I I guess probably doesn't mean anything to me now. It's the same situation. But uh, then around 2000 and must have been 2004, the internet was growing and I became aware that everybody who had a bio online were framed in the context of who they had interned with or worked Mm. with or studied with. Right. And so I looked for what I could and I could see there were a few designers in Antwerp, some designers in London. I found a a tailor in Italy whose website said he was the best tailor in the world. Now, back then, when you say you're the best tailor in the world on the internet, you must be because, you know, people don't make stuff up, right? <laughs> what tailor was it, if you don't mind? His name was uh, Gianni Campagna. He was in oh, Milan. Oh, Campagna. Yeah, yeah. You know this? Okay. So, 
I call up, what did I do? I think I went and learned Italian for three months to get enough Italian to call up and ask for a stage and go to Italy and work for this guy. And I spoke to his son and he agreed and I flew there and I got there and they were like, who, who are you? So I'd, you know, booked accommodation for three months or six months or something, flown across the world. And I was like, what? No one knew who I was. Oh, God. Or what I was doing there. And uh, that was a panic. And then I sort of I had a friend say, well, you're in Europe. Everything's basically around the corner. So why don't you uh, book another few job appointments, job interviews? So I wrote to basically everybody in Amsterdam and London that I could think of and then flew back and forward from the two countries until uh, I had one one offer from McQueen and one from, who was it? I think it was like AF Van der Voorst or something. Mm, yeah. And uh, I thought Van der Voorst will be much more interesting, but McQueen's probably going to look better on a CV. Which is <laughs> the, the absolute truth of why I picked it. So I went there and worked in the um, special garments area, continuing not to fit in. What was that like? It was not a pleasant experience. Oh, no. Working working in that studio taught me, and, and, and I will say this for the protection of other people, working in many fashion studios is not good for your health. And it's can you give a, me an example? It, it's not an industry that, uh, what's this term that, people use at the moment that they both like and dislike, which is self-care. There's not a really good opportunity to take care of yourself, to eat properly, to earn money, to work realistic hours when you're working to an industry that doesn't make sense because the fashion industry is not structured in a sustainable way. Right. Yeah, agreed. So you're there and you're kind of burning out. Do you did you learn anything? Did you feel that your your brain was enriched? No, and that's why I left. <laughs> because I, I wasn't getting something in return. Money okay. money is not my currency. In, information is my currency, right? I think we're sure. sort of establishing <laughs> establishing something here. Yeah, earning money to do something that I don't really believe in doesn't Trump working for almost nothing to do something I do believe in or do want to do or enjoy or get something out of. Right. I'm sure you're the same. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's why I make a very, very meager living as making podcasts. <laughs> I'm happier. I've never been happier in my life, but um, but it's tough because, I mean, I, I don't know what your life was like at the time, but... I feel that I'm often caught between a rock and hard place in the responsibilities I feel that um, to to be a parent, to be um, a yeah yeah to be a you know to be a spouse to be um, a contributor. I'm air quoting that like to society. Um, you know, I know that um, I want to provide a certain quality of life too. Which, which evolves, um, and I think that's one of the things that um, I often wrestle with a lot in any sort of field, um, because I want to have my own happiness, but I, I do want to. Um, sometimes the happiness that I feel is more by just being a good dad and being a good spouse and partner than 
doing the selfish thing I want to do, which is like talk about clothes and make a podcast. <laughs> tell, okay, tell me what you think about this. Okay. Life, time, okay, time is not moving forwards. It's moving backwards away from us. Everything that has happened is now in our past and everything that's going to happen is in our future. All of the stuff we've bought, we've already bought. Okay. As a parent, the the best thing that you could potentially be giving your child is the tools to do something that helps them. Now, when your kid is growing up and looking at you and watching you, and I say this in air quotes, come home sure. from work because right. we're working from home now, right? <laughs> what is the face that you're wearing when you come home from work? Oh, shit. Right? So this is what I'm talking about. Your kid learns their behavior from you. They learn their understanding of the world through the filter, mostly of you. Your right. reactions, your behaviors, not the things that you say in as much as the things that you do and how you react to the things that happen to you. So you're coming home from an ad agency making bank and buying as many things as your kid wants and needs and probably even more. Or you're coming home, you know, providing. Yeah happy and satisfied and presenting that the way to move towards the reality that's coming at you fast is to do it the way that you believe in. It's not to do it in a way that provides you the, uh, the highest consumer lifestyle possible because quality of life is not measured by stuff. It's measured by experience. Mm. So I heard this quote just yesterday. Um, Anything that exists can anything that exists exists in an amount, and anything that exists in an amount can be measured. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I think this is Descartes or something like that. Uh, so, when you're talking about your happiness or your fulfillment or your job satisfaction, and you look at it as a measurement, not that we do this, right? But you you think to yourself. My child's looking from the inside out at me. What are they seeing? What measurement are they seeing compared to what I do? If I'm working yeah. in, a, in a task that I don't like and I'm coming home unhappy but with stuff, the stuff is a representation. The formula doesn't make sense. Do things you don't like, get more stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think about this? Well, and it's it's tough because – and this is where, you know, it makes me wonder about the the time you had at McQueen in the sense that now from everyone else who's learning about you and they see, oh my God, this is truly really works at Alexander McQueen. Oh my, you know, that he must mean something. That's something special. That's something that is, it's you measurable. Know, exactly. Right? But that's and, why I picked it. And did I well, do the right thing by picking it? I'm not sure. Because the only mm, time I ever think about it is when someone asks me about it. It is so far in my past, had such little influence, such little positive influence. Right. That I wonder if I made the right decision. Now, here's here's the million-dollar question here. Do you believe that that decision opened doors for you that otherwise would not have been opened? I'm not sure, because I can't say there's been any moment where someone has said 
those two lines on your CV. That's why we're hiring you. Fair. In the same way that when Vogue does a full-page article on something, it does not move the needle on sales from, from my experience. Exactly correct. But you put that in your bio. Yeah, I was in Vogue once. That was pretty cool. Right? Yeah. So I was misguided to think it was the right choice, misguided by myself. It, mm. it was not a good reason to pick something. But I also mm. didn't know what the experience would be. So sure. I didn't go into it yeah, knowing hindsight. that I didn't go into it knowing how the UK fashion industry works, where the biggest resource is people. The the thing that gets used up the most is people. And this was right. an era where a lot of these agencies they didn't pay anything. Yeah. For like yeah. significant labor. I'm talking like double, triple shifts. And you know, no one's talking about it. They are now, but then there the the burnout that's gotta occur from there is just gotta be an all time high. I think so. Yeah. You know, what always troubles me about the the industry is um you know, we talk about sustainability quite a lot as a as a conscious, conscientious culture. The most sustainable fashion brand you could ever make is one that you don't make. <laughs> That's awful, but you're exactly right. Right. The only way to not make a brand that wastes is to not make the brand in the first place. Yeah. So you're throwing out a lot of stuff. You're encouraging people to consume more. And not just to, uh, to consume more, but what the industry has this particular way of compressing time. And what I mean by that is, Fashion, the fashion industry, which really began in the late 1600s in France as a very specific tool. Do you know this story? Uh, I care to enlighten me. I, I, I guess I don't. Jean-Baptiste Colbert, he's the Comptroller General of Louis Fourteenth, I think, or 16th. I forget. There's so many Louis. And he can see that uh, wealthy, wealthy landowners are dying and leaving... Uh, massive estates to their widows. Some of these estates are actually larger than the king's estate. So these people have more money than the king. Mm. And Jean-Baptiste, he thinks to himself, how can I alleviate these people of their financial burden so they don't become a threat to the king? And he devises what we now have as consumer culture. He kickstarts the culinary um, movement. Mm -hmm. He invents dishes. He brings lace makers from Vienna to start making lace. And he creates the fashion system that people should update their clothing at massive expense seasonally to look good in air quotes, but really to spend a lot of money so they're not a threat to the king. So fashion is designed for consumption continual, ongoing, repeated purchasing of things. So not only is fashion designed for consumption, but it's designed for accelerated consumption. Use something quicker than it wears out. Right. So the system has an inbuilt uh, redundancy. What's, what's the term? Um, this thing, it's actually now been banned in France to make products that have uh, like a short lifespan. Mm. But, you know, you used to buy furniture or clothing and you wore it 
till it broke and then you fixed it and then you kept using it and you handed it down to somebody else. But this, this planned obsolescence wasn't a thing. You didn't design things for them to be obsolete. But we are now making things stylistically obsolete before they actually become worn out or obsolete. So we've right. accelerated the use of resource to a point where we're making more things before we need more things. Yeah. And then creating the the world that that wants the new things. Yeah. yeah. That's right. You end up making a, a self-perpetuating system that keeps buying more stuff. So you start with people buying clothing maybe once a year in this case, but before then people weren't even doing that. And then you accelerate it a little bit into cold and hot temperatures, so summer and winter. And then for a while that's working, but then you see that two sale times a year is kind of not keeping the ball rolling. So you compress time again into four seasons a year. Spring, summer, resort, what's the other one? Cruise or something like this. Yep, yep. So we're now buying clothes four times, maybe even more, faster than we ever bought clothing before. Mm. Now, the people who are doing this, the designers, the administrators, the interns, are working harder and faster to shorter deadlines. So not only are they spending more of their life in this compressed time doing this thing, but less of those things are actually going to market. So the if you take energy as a resource, the energy goes into the person by food and shelter. And then what comes out of them is creative ideas. And you use one out of 10, you've got a 90% loss mm. on the energy that's going in. So even from the human resource point, from where the designer begins, you're already wasting because people have a lot of ideas, but now there's less time to execute them. So we throw out more things. So hours and human resource and energy are being wasted just as much as the physical things that we're buying. Jeez. Did yeah. that make any sense? No, it makes a ton of sense. It's absolutely depressing and heartbreaking, but right. it's a hard truth. I get it. And, you know, on one side, you can say, I will disengage from that brand because I don't believe in what they're doing. Sure. But that brand and any of these brands still have a responsibility for two things. They are a thermometer of social climate and mm. they influence how every other brand thinks that they're supposed to work, thinks that they are supposed to work. They set a bar. They say, even if you're a small brand, you need to have the production values of us you have to show on a runway. You have to spend all your money doing that. Yeah. You have to do two to four collections a year. You have to spend all your money doing that. You have to get into this kind of negative gear debt system where the products that you're selling, the money that you get from that is not actually paying for that production. It's paying for production three seasons ago. Yeah. And you have to stay in this system because you're constantly chasing the profit. Yeah. Not at any point are you chasing your own creative ideas. Sure, there are some brands that do that, but there are not that many brands who are, if they're being honest with themselves, trying to create a new thing. Most brands are in it for the business, which is okay because it's a business, right? Yeah. 
But if you look back, you know, 70 years, 70 years, World War II, 70 years, yeah. 80 years, there were restrictions on how much material you could use because the wartime effort needed the fabric for uniforms, for parachutes, for things like that. Oh, yeah, having watches allowed. and stuff too. There was very few steel watches around that time because the steel wasn't needed for the war effort. What were they made from? Uh, well, precious metals. I mean, in, in terms of like the, the high-end complications. Like a, a perfect example would be a 1940s Patek Philippe in steel is worth sig- by an order of magnitude significantly more than a late 1940s watch in gold because there was just less of them. It was, it was difficult for steel watches to be made by, you know, the high-end Swiss companies solely because of... Because value is, is essentially intersubjective. We yes. decide on what is value. Yes. We decide on what is valuable. So I, I bring this up quite a lot, but the opening of, is it Raiders or Temple of Doom, where he's in this Mayan temple and he's going to steal a gold statue and replace Raiders. it with a sandbag. It's yeah. Raiders? Thanks. Mm-hmm. How does the machine know that he's changed it? If the barrack weight and the mass is the same between the sandbag and the gold thing, why does the machine know the value has changed? Well, that's a great question. The only the only thing is that you in the movie you're led to believe that he guessed the weight of Okay, but let's just say he gets the weight right because I wanna I wanna sort of Okay, sorry. I want to imagine. I want to imagine that he, he's, you know, yeah, it's right. So yeah. you, I actually never thought about that point that you just made that he just messed up. Yeah, because I like to think that they're presenting a reality where a stone machine understands intersubjective value. <laughs> right. And why is that particular gold statue worth his life to him? What is it about that unique object that when we look at it, we all know that it's more valuable than a pile of gold that's not that form or that old? Well, in this case, the the the, the statue resembles a culture and a culture that you can learn from and study and understand on a deeper level and therefore understand more about the human race and, and yourself. So Indiana Jones convictions was always the whole, you know, screaming it belongs in a museum, uh, which is tough because you get into the weird things of like pillaging cultures and taking things away from Yeah, we that, don't do that anymore. Well, that's <laughs> really out of date now, isn't it? Yeah, right. But for him, this, his whole higher power and was 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 learning, right? It was was learning about people and finding a way to make the learning about these people in a very accessible uh, form, right? So, um, it wasn't squandered like, say, in in his case, you know, the Nazis that were taking it for their own sort of, you know, self gain. Yeah, for him, it was it was showing this to others. But you're essentially bringing up almost uh, exact same situation where the gold, which probably has more material value, has less Correct. cultural value. Yeah, sure. Isn't that weird? Well, of course it's weird. Mankind's weird. Yeah. <laughs> so so we have this situation, which you've probably heard about, that for the first time in recorded history, we are using more gold than we discover, than we, than we mine. So gold has almost always been recycled mm-hmm. 
from Roman coins and all the way up into computer chips. It has been a recycled system of constantly reusing the gold. But now we're throwing gold away. Gold inside technology, cell phones, computers. We're now throwing the stuff away faster than we mine it. And gold is a finite resource. We don't have endless amounts of anything, actually, but gold gold in particular. So, but I, I, again, I just think it's super interesting that we value objects more than time. So if resource is finite, which it is, and we've created a system that has no brakes on it, there's no way to pause the fashion system from what, from what we can see, because even with COVID, people are still doing it. And I, and, and I have a colleague who works in fashion on the sort of future technology side. I said to him the other day, so what's up? And he's like, oh, I have to do all this. He dropped like six major brand names. I'm like, are they, are, haven't they got the memo? <laughs> Fashion's not important anymore. It's, you know, survival again, right? And he's like, not to them. The major brands are still foot on the accelerator. They're still pushing and pushing and pushing. But there are like two things. There are two things that I keep thinking about, right? They both come down to resource and licenses or regulations, right? If there was a regulation on material usage, not everybody could just become a fashion designer, get a line of credit, buy material, produce it, try and sell it, fail at selling 100% of the stock, put the stock in a storeroom, pay for the electricity, the humidity controls, and the rental to then keep paying for that stock to exist. So if there was some kind of restrictions, there would be much less waste. But there's not. Anybody can do anything, anytime, pretty much with enough of a convincing attitude. Mm. Now, on the other side is anytime you use a digital device, you're also using energy. Mm -hmm. So every time you take a photograph and it's stored in the cloud, there's a data server churning and using resource to keep that photograph alive. So there are two things that potentially, if they were regulated, like using the internet and using resource, we would be in a very different situation. Imagine if you had to get a license to use the internet. Oh, that would one be license, fantastic. One license to look at it and another license to you to put content on there. Yeah. Do you think that the entire troll culture would change if you had to pay to leave a comment? Well, of course, but then it would be, you know, who watches the Watchmen? You know, and in a weird way, the, the argument for, mo for more cases is just like, you just let everyone find some way to, to self-govern. This is basically Reddit. Like, I, I imagine that someday, 100 years from now, there'll be just one of the, you know, tons and tons of syllabus and thesis on, on, the, on the culture of Reddit and, and self-government. You know, because look, I agree. I think there it would be exceptional to have some form of regulation across. You know, I mean, this is when you get into things like Section two hundred and thirty of the United of you know of basically the the laws that allow social media things to exist and not be held accountable for the comments by the users who use the social media. Right? Is that it's, Section two hundred and thirty? Yes, that's called Section two hundred and thirty, and and right now it's it's. Uh, m many people, specifically the the far right, are think that Section two hundred and thirty needs to be adjusted in a way that holds the companies like and such as uh, Facebook and and all these companies 
responsible for what people say on there or you know so thus saying if if that's the case the these companies like Instagram and Twitter and all these people are going to regulate much further because they could be held responsible for the damages that occur from the people who are using it however if that's the case you get into the question of who watches the watchmen all the time and and so in many ways it you're just kind of better off by just not you know by not messing with it and just letting it exist on its own and hoping the that mankind uh will find a way to sort of self-govern and so the the case that many people often bring up is the fact that reddit more or less is self-governs but then the the argument against that is 4chan <laughs> which is like you know 4chan and 8chan which were which are message boards that have created QAnon and have created just some of the most hateful awful disgusting vile places on the internet i've been lucky enough so far that the things that do exist on reddit in relation to what i make have always made me laugh like the the angrier or the more annoyed people have become about something that i've made has always amused me and i've been lucky for it to not sort of spiral out into some kind of massive troll Hunt. Troll hunt? Hunt by trolls? Which hunt? Trolls? Trolled, I don't know. Trolling. Yeah. Massive trolling. Yeah. 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 What does this new work from home wardrobe look like? Some of us have gone back into offices and some of us are staying put, but all of us are looking for something better for our wardrobes. P. Johnson is a custom men's clothier with a focus on soft tailoring, comfort, and the natural laid-back elegance. With their own private factory in Italy and lush showroom in New York, Sydney, Melbourne, or London, you can easily stop in and see for yourself. Or check out one of their trunk shows. And by the way, they even do virtual appointments now. Patrick and the crew just released their new winter ready-to-wear collection, and it's fantastic. My personal favorite is the technical field jacket or the vegan suede overshirt. By the way, pair that with a turtleneck, boom! It's a put-together look, but not contrived. Simple, elegant, and flattering. And if you want something special, you can make something new, and you're not going to wait nine months. We're only talking a few weeks for made-to-order stuff. So visit pjt.com to view it and learn more. P. Johnson builds individually crafted top-to-bottom wardrobes for men and women, so you can even nab stuff for him or her. I bought tons of MTM and MTO tailoring in my life, but P. Johnson ticks every box for me, from the price, the style, the fit... Everything they ever make is an extension from the last, so you don't really need to worry about what season it is. It's always about improving your wardrobe with their quality pieces year after year. So visit pjt.com to learn more or just go to their Instagram. You'll see the new eyewear, which is incredible, over shirts, and some of the best styling you'll see on any runway or catwalk. It's a vibe. It's P. Johnson. It's always, it's always a little bit amusing to see people get angry about an idea. Yes. My ideas. My ideas. I'm not talking about, you know, ideas on... Like, what, the skin ring or the, the shoes or what? The first uh, real surprise was when my website crashed because there were 1.5 million visits in, I think, a 30-minute period. This is about 10 years ago when I'd made a glove from shark skin. Oh, yeah. And I was like, this has got to be an error. What is happening? You know, and the hate that came out over that, I don't know, I've always been amused by it. <laughs> it's kind of the same with the Norlin 
stuff. I mean, it's a whiskey glass. It costs a little bit more than other whiskey glasses. But man, does that make people angry. Yeah. The um, the entitled, middle-aged, white man at home who is angry about the price of a glass that he's not going to buy and puts energy into really typing about it. I'm amazed by that. Like, where, where does that energy come from? Can it be put to better, to better? I think, I think one of the one of my favorite insults when we launched Norland was someone who wrote, what was it? The phrasing was like, great. Another startup from an Asian CEO, white college guy, and a hipster Jesus. Jeez. And it was just so piercingly spot on and hurtful and I couldn't I think I think I laughed for a week it was just so brilliantly offensive I mean (laughs) that stuff's heartbreaking because a lot of the things you know the internet because it's just piped into your house and it's in and around you at all times it becomes your your easiest way to vent too right so if you have a crap day and your boss is an asshole to you and you got all these you know insults and anger built up against you and your kid didn't want to go to bed and all those other things that are happening you open up your laptop late at night and you just find things to get angry about and then you just yeah, let it I think that's what I, it is yeah of course the amount of emails i get from things where i'll discuss so like i try not to make the podcast very political ever but it's pretty easy to find out that like i'm not a big fan of trump and wasn't a big fan of trump and um i never try to attack anyone for what they believe, but I just have no problem communicating why I believe what I believe. And I'll get people messaging me about political stuff, um, you know, in so much where, you know, and, and my thing, like, I don't engage ever. I'm just like, hey, sorry, you know, we can't agree. And then, oh my God, then because I'm not like clapping back that my silence to them is more of an insult, and then it, and then they'll come more and more and more and more. And then I just block them. And to where there's been cases where I'm just like, hey, you know what? Like the the level that you want to engage with me right now is not the same level that I would ever meet anyone at. And I'm not going to go to name calling. I'm not going to go to this. But in a weird way, people feel more connected to me because they listen to me so much. Because people have listened to me for hundreds of hours in their ears. So they feel that there's some form of kinship that doesn't actually exist. And they're like, oh, I know all these things about him and his wife and his kids and whatever and, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever they want to believe. And so they feel there's this like intimacy that just has never existed. And so then when I, when I, you know, air quote, let them down, it is even more of a, you know, stab in the back and they just really let me have it. Oh, man. And so it's fucked. I mean, I'll be honest, like I mean counseling for lots of the things about that where people are commenting about my weight and my my body and my hair and my whatever anything you want to just find it, you know. Uh it's and so yeah, uh, you're not you're not I I don't have the wisdom to look at it and laugh. I usually just like shut down and I'm like, "All right, man, I'm just going to delete that. I'm just going to not I think engaged. that's where it's different for for the both of us. Yeah. I, I think I'm in a, a much safer position because I don't I, – I, I'm not in a position where I have to put my personal life out there. Right. Which is much harder when you are the product and the brand yourself, which you are. 
in this, yeah. in this example, right? And there was there was actually one moment where I got a taste of this and I did not like it at all. When I saw on one of the chat forums people talking about things that had been happening in the studio, you know, like business stuff, timelines. Somebody was commenting about when something was coming out of production and what the something to do with a delay or this. And I'm like, how does this person know that? Oh, yeah. You got some Watergate stuff going on in there. <laughs> no, you see, I don't think so. I don't. I or they, don't or they just making it up. I think it's people making stuff up. But that's what I was. I was thinking: if someone in the studio has spoken to a friend and said, for example, the shoes are in production; they're going to be three weeks late, and then that person wanted to feel important and went online and said, "Yeah, well, I know this uh, thing, and information is currency, so I have some value here." I think that's pretty normal. I think everybody wants to do that. Yeah, yeah. But what is abnormal is when somebody would say, like, I would like to pretend that I have this value and go online and talk about stuff. And I found it very weird, the idea that people would fabricate things about you. And this is stuff that people in the media, celebrities, artists, they deal with this all the time. And I don't know how they do it because it made me feel sick very quickly. And I think from that point on made a conscious decision to be much less out of the media. And only since this two questions each thing have I sort of had any real public interaction. Mm. And I mean, even still, when we're doing the, the live things, we get some horrible comments popping up on the feed. Why don't you go punch yourself in the dick? And that I'm doesn't thinking, seem that bad. That's kind of funny. <laughs> Well, it is. I'm amused by it. But then I start to visualize the actual mechanics of trying to do something like that. (laughs) And it's very hard to maintain conversation flow when you're trying to figure out from, do you punch from the side, from the front, back into the body? Because I trained in boxing, you know, you want leverage and movement. Do you have to hold onto the wall with one hand in between a doorway so you're not like in zero gravity pushing yourself? Physically punching yourself in the dick, I don't think is that easy to do. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Try you it. should have you should have told him that. Try it. Try it. Hell no. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> well, I've gotten into podcasts only in the last few years, and I know what you mean by you feel like you have a special relationship with that person. To me, Conan O'Brien is like, I've known him forever. He's like my best friend now. Right. Because I've listened to all of his episodes. And you probably watched him too, right? So there's even... Actually, you, no. you have a See, I, I really? missed... My, so, so my Conan experience is The Simpsons. Okay. And then Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend podcast. That, that's, that's almost alpha and omega. <laughs> my God, is he a funny man. He is so funny. Yeah. And just the... The absolute commitment to being in a really negative position in a conversation that he will take purely as a form of entertainment, knowing how bad he looks following down this thread of how much of a bad person he is, it's incredibly funny. But see, Conan has a slight luxury in the fact that at the end of the day, people go to that show for a form of comic relief. 
Now, it's on that show, there are real human stories and interactions and things like that that happen that are very beautiful, right? But at the end of the day, the the line that runs through all of it is this form of comic relief. So Conan can kind of, um, you know, start to make little jokes or poke fun at these things and immediately add a bit of a pressure release anytime things get too heavy. And like, yeah. that's something that like, I don't, I don't have that luxury not that like anyone should feel sorry for me, but like I don't have that luxury on the show because even though first off every podcast more or less edits, you know, I mean, out if of you res- look at how Marin structures his podcast, yeah, and knowing how much editing he's talked about, how much editing there is and the moving around of the topic points. Oh yeah, they'll they'll do that a ton. Okay, so this is kind of an interesting parallel to small brands looking at big brands, and that's the bar. There must be a similar thing where the production value of a podcast has to match Marin. And he have to be so on point and flow so well. And Well, it's tough because like the best podcasts, I think, are are tied to the identities of people, right? People like Marin and like a Marin interview because they they have an understanding of who he is and how he's gonna handle that conversation. And so it's it's just how like, okay, you know, nowadays when there's a press tour, especially in COVID times, right? Like every everyone just goes on a podcast. So Matthew McConaughey releases a new book. He goes on Dax Shepard. He goes on um, Marin. He goes on all these other shows, right? And the interview you're going to get is going to be different because it's always going to be from the perspective of that person. It's just like anyone who was making the talk show circuit back in the day. But like with Marin... He, they edit a bit, but Marin also does these really, really long monologues at the beginning of him. And, you know, his comedy has always been through these like multiple trains of thought to get to his destination. He doesn't go up with like bits, like say your, your traditional comics in the past, like where like I got this bit, this bit and this bit and all these things lead me here. Marin would go up with nothing and just kind of have a one-sided conversation with the, with the audience and then make funny observations throughout that. Now, there might be planned funny observations, but he would do that. And then when you get into how he did podcasts, he basically would do a little monologue at the beginning. Then he does these really long things, and all of his all of his interviews go into him asking questions that, like, he, he might, like, say, like, if, it, if this was Marin, I'd be like, what did your parents do? Tell me about your parents. What's your relationship with your dad like? What's your relationship with? And then he matches he matches that by being like, yeah, well, my dad was this and my dad's crazy and my dad was a doctor and my dad, you know, and so that, you know, I've tried to do that in ways of communicating more about myself in order to force a intimacy match between me and the guest. Because if I tell someone how my dad's dying, and my dad's Parkinson's is slowly destroying my life and it's heartbreaking and I hate it. There's this awkward tension where someone feels the need to match me at that. And then they're going to start talking about their dad and so on. So like Marin does that and he's really good at it. And you never know whether it's funny or not. And so like there's that good sort of tension there. But with Conan, it's always got to be funny. I mean, that's a very long explanation of me just talking about the difference between a lot of No, those, but I think it's a very guys. important one because... These are the two podcasts I've listened to most. Those right. two guys, right? Followed up by the 99%. Oh, 99% Invisible? 
Yeah, that one, that one, that one. Yeah, that's those are all like top dog stuff, and their production levels are through the roof. Into which there's sound design, there's all sorts of stuff. But you have yeah. three major figureheads, all who happen to be white males. But that's not really <laughs> the point. Yeah, but they all approach it based on what you're saying from a very different thing. Like uh, Roman, it's Roman Mars, right? I hear this name every day. I must get it right. Yeah, doesn't talk about himself. Well, he's a capital J journalist, not negatively. But just like there's well, a school of thought that's behind there it. Is, in a- there is a um, an intimacy that I find when someone makes fun of me. Mm. I'm not sure what this says about my upbringing. But when people can insult what I do in just the right way, it's the funniest thing that I can experience. My wife is incredibly good at this, at me. <laughs> and it's sort of insulting what I do or making fun of me. And it's just, it's so cutting. And I don't know why I find it, you know, it's like someone has to know you super well to be able to get that right. Yeah. Well, it also keeps you from getting too, you know, too off the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have I actually talked about anything useful yet other than just my opinion on stuff? Well, I mean, if you want my honest opinion, I think it's been You've shared a lot of philosophical things. All right, let's talk about stuff. And that that have been intermixed with your own life and experience. Um, Yeah, you you made me think of this thing as I was walking away before and wondering whether I should actually come back. But I came back. (laughs) Uh, You said... um, but I realized as I was walking back and forth that where I started with clothing was making one-offs mm. made to measure tailoring, this sort of thing. And then I guess the next sort of point in my career was uh, doing um, limited editions, which I was calling non-products. There was a huge challenge to doing this because I was doing it from Iceland just after the economic crash where there was no material or resource. There was no uh, migrant labor force that you have in many countries to make things more affordably. Right. Uh, There was only a sort of elite labor force, meaning very expensive, very slow, very low quality. Low quality? Low quality, yeah, because the, Mm. the bar here was not very high. Okay. So I had to figure out how do I make a once a month release where I design sample, produce, photograph, and upload for sale within one month, the product. And so that was the sort of second stage of volume. Then it moved into fashion collections. So larger volumes, larger uh, releases. Mm -hmm. After that, there were a few sort of turns here and there working with Uh, as the creative director of an innovation lab in Amsterdam, developing materials. (coughs) Again, the material scale was even more than what I'd done before. And then Norlin. And now, so like Norlin has sold almost half a million glasses of that, uh, I guess, the main glass. This is a super weird thing for me to think about because essentially what's happening is you get a 40-foot shipping container. And if you've ever seen somebody play Minecraft... You can just do like bricks. It's like that with the glass. You fill the container with a solid block of one object and then you move it across the world. So I went from one-offs 
to limited editions to uh, collections, then all of a sudden it's hundreds of thousands of units of the same thing. Are you happier? I don't know. I, I don't measure my happiness against that. Uh, but uh, let, hmm, that's a good question. Let me think about that one. But now what I've moved into is something that seems to be my most natural state when it comes to commercial work, and that is venture design. Are you familiar with venture design? I am not. What is that? So product design is where you design the object, maybe the user experience or the interface. <laughs> uh, venture design is essentially where you're designing the company, the, the whole USP, the brand, all the objects, and then kind of sell it as a complete package or partner with someone to develop it. So now I've moved into not just designing the object and the uh, uh, the identity of the brand, like with Norlin, but mm-hmm. many brands, one by one. So it's like world building and then moving them off. Mm. And it's the most it's the most enjoyable state because it's so quick. It's a very high level as well at first, and then you move down into the more granular elements of object grouping, ritual function, material. I'm happier when I can work more. So there are, okay, look, there, there are three things that I could give as a piece of advice to any creative who is uh, trying to figure out how to do creativity professionally. Okay. And that is to, to get three, three things. Brief budget timeline. With a brief, you know what you have to do or what you can't do. With a budget, you essentially understand its scalability. And with a timeline, you know when you have to do it by. These three things anchor me into the world. With those three things, I have purpose. Without those three things, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with, with life. Being able to take those three things and very quickly create an entire company is a lot of fun. But I'm just as happy making one single object as long as I am doing something. Right. Yeah, That's that's got to be... I mean, if you look at your career and like a 30,000 foot view of it, you go from making very one-off things, slowly teaching yourself to having a pretty, what appears to be somewhat rigorous and strict um, restraints actually as to how things need to be, how things need to be made and the mass that they're made by. There are no restraints. There were, actually that's not true. There were restraints and they were all complete bullshit (laughs) they were restraints that didn't make any sense and they were based on my surroundings and my education I was completely under the self-imposed totalitarian idea that it had to only be natural material material could never stretch it had to be tailoring they were totally pretentious things that only limit you but not in the way we talked about before, they don't limit you in a way that helps you push and break out. They're just limits. Like, oh, I can't use a cool mm. material because it's not made out of wool. This is stupid. Letting go of that was very, very helpful. Creating what was it those, that made you want to let go of it? It was uh, repeating myself. Mm. Knowing, knowing that I was making what to me was essentially the same thing as I'd already made was not comfortable. I was very uncomfortable with that. So, look, one thing we haven't talked about is the idea of uh, strength and weakness. 
We okay. touched on it before, but understanding your strength as your weakness and understanding your weakness as your strength. So when I go into any new, when I go into any new uh, relationship, whether it's creative or business, I make it as absolutely clear as I possibly can that you cannot give me any uh, office tasks, bureau- bureaucracy, any kind of bureaucratic bureaucratic tasks. Mm. You can't give me a bill to pay. You can't give me something that requires doing it the same thing more than once because I won't do it. I'll believe that I can do it and that I will do it and I'll convince myself I'm going to do it, but I actually won't. Administration or work, I'm never going to prioritize it. Don't know why, but I'm just not wired like that. This is a weakness to some people. Acknowledging it is a strength, being upfront about it is important, and it becomes a strength when someone knows they can't give you a task that you're not going to do. Right. Now, I'm not saying that this pushes away responsibility, but this makes it clear what the uh, responsibilities are and what the expectation is. And if I tell you, Jeremy, um, I can definitely pay all those bills, but I'm not going to because I just won't do it. I don't know why. And if you don't sort of operate with that information and then you do give me those things to do, then we're going to be in the situation I talked about. Right. So do you have someone else or something that that is able to get the things done that... In, in every project I go into, I make sure there is someone who can really do those things. Someone right. who is... Uh, uh, project management oriented. Now, yeah. so, so conversely, where uh, rapid fire creativity is a strength, it can actually become a weakness as well. Because you might be good at that role, but if you're entering a business partnership that's long term and they need you to do other things once you've come up with all the cool fun work, then all of a right. sudden you're, you're in a weak point because you can't do it. You were good at the yeah. beginning, but there's nothing out the back. <laughs> so... um I think, you know, understanding that your weaknesses are what they are and that they're a part of you and you can work on changing them, but if they're not changed yet, people need to know that. Yeah, there's an argument that I know a lot of people will make in terms of uh, do you spend, should you spend more time trying to be better at the things that you're not good at or, um, or spend more time on the things that you are good at to be a master at, right? So it's a sense of like the whole jack of all trades, master of none. Well, for me, as I've gotten older, I've realized that it's more helpful for me to be the best at things that I am good at um, versus trying to, you know, like a perfect example. So look for the podcast. Like I'm not the greatest editor. I learned how to be an editor on my own and I was trying to do it, but it's difficult to edit myself. But eventually I had to entrust and empower someone else to make those decisions for me and me to focus more on just giving, helping create content to edit, if that makes sense. Instead makes perfect of, sense. I, yeah. I did the same thing. I edited the first three episodes myself. It took four days each. Yeah. Then I realized not only am I not enjoying this and I'm overthinking it Yeah. and I'm cleaning it up too much, Yeah. but also paying somebody the amount that they ask for to do it means I don't have to do it. <laughs> well, yeah, too. And that's the other thing is like, you know, I, I also feel better, you know, paying people to do stuff, to do jobs, to, to, to get things, um, 
you know, and the goal eventually is to pay people even more, right? I mean, I, I, um, I told everyone, it's like, look, as I, as I start to make more, we all will make more and we'll, yeah. you know, um, yeah. The trust is a really important point that I want to talk about because I think this arc that I was talking about before going from one-offs slowly growing to more and more and more implies mm. that I was actually learning to trust more people to work with me and that they could do what they were doing. Otherwise, scalability is not an option. And now moving into the, the, the total world-building venture design part of it implies that I'm trusting someone to do all of it and stepping away from it. Are you? Well, I must be. It, 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 I, you can't do one without the other. If you don't trust that someone's going to do the thing they say they're going to do and do it well after a little bit of back and forth and figuring stuff out. Right. I mean, I can give you one super specific example. The okay. photographer that I work with, Marno Tolasius. Incredible photographs, incredible photographer. I'm not just giving him a shout out for the sake of it. <laughs> I... I tie the uh, visual success of my brand, meaning strong, conveyable images of objects that tell a very, very quick story in one frame, mm -hmm. a very rich story, a very full story, to him. Because before Marno, my photographs sucked. They sucked so bad. Why did they suck? Because they were... They were bad photographs. They were not bad photographers. I was the mm. problem. I was mm. involved in the process, getting the angles right, overlighting, talking about the photoshopping and the post work and what to clean up and not to clean up. I was in the way. When did you realize you were in the way? So Marino, I met him because we had studios next door to each other. And I thought he was like some homeless guy. And he thought I was... A drunk. I thought he was homeless because hmm. he never left the space. I thought he must just be living in there. And he thought I was a drunk because I was walking around with uh, a water bottle, drinking water all the time. But it was a, sort of a delabeled vodka bottle. Hmm. So he actually thought I was just walking around drinking vodka. And he comes in one day and he says, can I photograph your stuff? And I'm like, no, no. I don't think so. It's like, yeah, I just, you know, I won't charge you. I'll just, you know, maybe I can shoot this thing. Like, uh, okay, take it. He takes it. I forget about it. Some time later, I don't even remember because it was such a, it was, it was a moment that I didn't even really pay attention to. He comes back in with a CD and he puts it on the table and it says Belty, Belt in Icelandic. Mm-hmm. He's like, here, take a look. And then he leaves. And I put the disc in the computer, because we used to do that. <laughs> and I look at the images, and I'm like, what am I, what is this? What am I looking at? It was such an unexpected photograph, and so different to what I'd been shooting before, that I just was like, I just took the disc out and just kind of, yeah, whatever. Okay, that was a waste of time. Hmm. But it played on me. And I kept thinking, what is it that I don't like about this? This is a very important point that I want to talk about because 
if you always do the thing that you like, you do not grow as a creative. So going through university, I was always working in the same materials, same colors. Everything always looked the same. And the only way for me to grow out of that was to work with things that I didn't like, colors that I didn't like, materials that I didn't like. So Mm. I tried it. I went and made something out of some pink material. And it completely blew my mind because I was like, what is this thing that I've just made that on one hand I made it and I know it. I know its true name. I know its form. I know its origin story. I know its birthing process. But it's also so completely alien. I don't know what this thing is because it doesn't look like me or what I've made before. So it exists in this state of dissonance. This it is and it isn't mine. I had to kind of like move into a territory that I was uncomfortable with to create something I was unfamiliar with. And that has followed through all the way. Whenever I don't like something, I, I end up asking myself, what is it that I don't like about it and how can I use it? How can I make ugly things beautiful? Now, I know these are not uh, sort of correct terms to use, but they are reactions, right? Right, right. How do I use something that I'm not attracted to to create something that I am attracted to? Because I'm not attracted Mm. to sameness. I am novelty seeking. I need new things all the time, new stimulation all the time. So how do I... How do I set this up? How do I prime myself to be constantly open to new and next? So as soon as things become repetitive, it's the opposite. I have to move away from them. So repetitive tasks that I was talking about before, I can't do them because I'm repulsed by them. I'm bored by them. Yeah. And there's a part of your psychology that makes you lose time when something becomes too familiar. You get out of your car, you walk away from the car, Did I lock the car? You go back, you check it. Of course you locked it. You just don't remember you locked it because it's become a reflex action. You've done it so many times that you don't know you're doing it anymore. So you end up losing these moments of time into these monotonous, repetitive tasks. Yeah. So I put the disc back in the computer. I put his disc back in the computer and I look at it again, maybe a week later. I'm like, what has he done here that makes it look so much like my thing, but so in my face? That's what it was. That was the feeling. It was in my face. Mm. And he had just shot it in a completely different way to anyone else had. He had shot the object like a fashion photographer would. He had shot it with mood, emotion, scale, distance. It had all of the elements that I'd learned in art school. Scale, context, repetition of form, light and dark, texture, everything was in this thing. And I didn't like it, but I was in love with it. He had taken something that only I knew and shown it back to me in a way I didn't know. So this Mm. is where trust comes into it. I like to be on set with Marino, but he has barred me from being on set because he knows what I will do. I will get in the way. And so now... And it's been like this for several years. I give him the thing. He says, what do you want me to do with it? And I say, you know, these are the, the angles that we need. You know, I, I need to make sure we have this, this is the, this and this. Right, right. And that's it. And I get the fuck out of the way. 
of his way and more importantly, my own way. And the photos that I get back never have notes. Interesting. I just don't, I just don't have any notes for him. He sends me a photograph and I'm like, so that's how it looks. I'm like, I'm in this state of waiting to discover what it looks like, even though I've made it. And it seems right. to be only he has been able to do this with my things. Every other photographer, I'm, I have to talk to them about lighting. or And that's not to say they're bad photographers, because they're not. They're all professionals, probably even more professional than Arno. But um, in fact, definitely more professional than Arno. But, um, <laughs> but they don't do this maverick, unexpected, seeing its soul that he does. Right. And that only comes with trust. I have to just trust that he's not, that I, I'm not in the way. And that he will do right. something that is beautiful and unexpected and emotional. So my brand is nothing, as in my brand, as in my personal brand, my brand identity mm -hmm. is nothing without him. He is such an important uh, partner and collaborator for the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, that's like level 10 sort of, uh, like design and even business is just understanding that you shouldn't be in control at all times. And in most cases, you know, because uh, the, the joke of that in, in like American capitalism, whatever is founder syndrome, right? Into which, as you're a founder and you you basically you know you turn into micromanaging and then you want to control all these aspects of it, but there is a joy and a freedom and liberty of of empowering others and and setting the expectation of this is, sounds tacky to say, but like setting the ex expectation of being surprised by other people's you know, understandings of, of what the shared idea is. Um, but you are spot on with that word surprise. Yeah. Because yeah. when it comes to, you know, we're talking about currency and value and all these things, right? But when it comes to what is your product, what I hope my product is, is surprise. Hmm. What I hope that people will expect from me is that they don't know what to expect. Well, truly, this was very, very, very enlightening. Uh, I had more fun than you just because I'm competitive. Competitive? Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, no, this was great. No, I'm serious. I, I really enjoyed it. We should we should do this again because I think there was a lot of things that you said that was uh, that I'd love to explore more. Um, but for the sake of time, we're we're I'm unfortunately running out. Um, I'd love to. It's. I'd like to know more about your stuff instead of just monologue at you. But um. no, you're fine. Uh, yeah, no, I'm. I'm happy to. But yeah, it was. It was really good chatting with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me on here. It's the first time I've been on a podcast ever. Really? What? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, I don't think I've done another podcast. Oh. It's been. Well. It's been a real treat to talk with you. Actually, it really has. I've been oh, wanting to do you. this for a long time. First, the first of many. I hope so. I will see. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they live, but they made the music. We're edited by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blamo Media. 
You can follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Look, I don't really get reviews either, but do me a favor. Go to the Apple Podcasts app or whatever app you're using. Hit us with those five stars. Do it for the B. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam. You get access to additional interviews, our community Slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. We love it and we love you. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye.